Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Three major American cities, New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles, are on lockdown this morning, and world leaders will convene their G7 meeting via teleconferencing this summer. Senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen is standing by to report on the data that's driving America's reaction to the coronavirus. Former CMS official Matthew Albright reports on the status of proposed bipartisan legislation in response to the coronavirus outbreak. Sean Weiss returns to the broadcast report on regulations regarding sick leave in the wake of COVID-19. Healthcare attorney David Glazer continues his reporting on the legal business when it comes to COVID-19. Elephant Sandwich has the latest news concerning the social determinants of health. Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel reports on how auditors could use the coronavirus to deny claims. And making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1RCM. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Thank you everyone for continuing to care for patients and continuing to take this pandemic seriously. Now there's lots of misinformation out there, so let me clarify some things. The three-day SNF waiver for Medicare patients applies to every SNF everywhere in the country. No SNF or state needs to apply for a waiver. There does not even need to be any COVID-19 cases in the community to use the waiver. The SNF simply accepts the patient and puts the DR condition code on the claim and it will be paid. Likewise, it's very clear that the important message from Medicare and the Moon and all other notices can be explained to the patient by telephone. Personal protective equipment should not be wasted on a registration clerk or case manager simply to explain the notice, get a signature and hand the document to a patient. Now, I wish I could say that the status of swing beds was as clear. A swing bed is a bed in a rural or critical access hospital that can be used for acute care or for rehab care like a SNF. Swing beds provide SNF-like care but are classified and paid differently. Now, when I inquired if the three-day waiver applies to swing beds, the answer was no from CMS. When a colleague asked CMS the same question, it was routed to a different person who said the waiver does apply. So then I went to a high-ranking CMS official, and the answer for now is that the waiver does not apply. But note that when the SNF waiver was issued on March 13th, it was retroactive to March 1st. So if swing beds do get included, uh, which is likely, it'll also be retroactive. Um, Now, if you admitted somebody already, just apply the DR code and hope for the best. Now, let me note at this point that my correspondence with CMS has included emails that CMS staff sent to me Saturday night at 10 p.m., Sunday morning at 11 a.m., and Sunday night at 11 p.m. So let me assure you that CMS, this is being taken very seriously, and I thank them for all their efforts, and I understand the confusion. Other notes. Still no word on delaying the new important message form, but I would not sweat this one. Waivers for the PASAR required for SNF 
is a state-by-state -state waiver. MIPS and all quality payment programs are waived until July. New York State has put significant restrictions on all insurers about prior authorizations and denials of care. Physicians have started using FaceTime to conduct office visits and are permitted to bill office visit codes. Physicians would be wise to keep a log of all their phone calls because CMS has been asked to approve payment for simple phone calls. On the negative side, we've already seen one major insurer deny a four-day admission for pneumonia when the COVID test returned negative. Now, I understand that they're concerned about their CEO's salary and their stockholders, but now is not the time for greed. Finally, be sure your CFO is aware that the DNFB is going to go up. This is not the time to send physicians CDI queries when they're having to reuse masks. Just hold those charts. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1, RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Now's the time for the Monitor Monday Rack Report with Nicole Emanuel. And good morning, Nicole. Good morning. What a strange Monday this is. Will commercial payers see an opportunity to leverage the CMS guidance to deny claims? In this time of crisis, regulations are loosened. How does that affect audits? We all know CMS has broadened access to Medicare telehealth services. David's reporting on these new rules. But what about Medicaid? Insurance matters even in this time of crisis. How will providers know what CPT codes to use? Is there a catch-all CPT code for, in quotes, holy cow, we're in a shutdown? Future rack audits will be defined by these times. Remember these dates for future audits. December 2019 through an indefinite time. Criteria are being loosened to battle the virus, but will you be held accountable after the aftermath? In normal times, auditors mistake policies. Audits conducted in 2020 are using Medicare or CAID policies from 2016-2017, anything but 2020. Sometimes the problem with being current is that you can't be current because currently the moment's passed. Even a 2020 policy can be old if the revised date of the most up-to-date policy is January 23rd, 2020. Everyone is asking for leniency. Home care companies want more home medical equipment. Documentation requirements are being waived. What does this do to Medicare audits? Here's an example of some new rules. Provider enrollment flexibilities. CMS is temporarily suspending certain Medicare enrollment screening requirements, including site visits and fingerprinting for non-certified Part B suppliers, physicians, and non-physician practitioners. Flexibility and relief for Medicaid state agencies. The National Emergency Declaration also enables CMS to grant state and territorial Medicaid agencies a wider range of flexibilities under Section 1135 waivers. Loosening HIPAA requirements. That's a big deal. Due to the virus, 
now, HIPAA is now being on pause. This used to be a criterion for audit. Also, emergency preparedness was a criterion for audit. Now auditors will be laxer about compliance for emergency preparedness. These are all new, new criterions for the audits going forward. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Alan Fink-Samnick, Matthew Albright, Sean Weiss, and Frank Cohen, who's standing by to report our lead story. This is Monday. It's March 23rd, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Imagine the convenience of having access to one of the nation's most respected sources of interventional and diagnostic radiology services. Imagine no more registering for each resource, e-books, coding charts, e-newsletters, blogs, plus live and on-demand webcasts. No hassles, no searches. Now you can have access with an all-access pass from MedLearn Publishing. MedLearn is America's most trusted leader in coding, billing, and compliance for interventional and diagnostic radiology services. Tap into this expertise with an all-access pass, now available with one low annual investment. The all-access pass opens a new window of convenience, giving you complete access to the MedLearn portfolio of resources. Subscribe today for your all-access pass. Get top-rated radiology, interventional radiology, coding, and compliance education. Now available online at shop.medlearn.com. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, good morning. What could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. Before I dive into the risk, I just want to mention that on the panelist resources tab, I've got two links. The first is to the waiver I'm going to talk about today. The second is a list of links that might be useful. So last week, I discussed EMTALA. This week, I'd like to dive in in more detail. The legal analysis is one of the most difficult I've worked on in recent times, but I want to channel something Ron said a minute ago. My practical advice remains unchanged. During the pendency of this crisis, do what's right. Um, he's, Ron is right. People get this for the most part. There will be a few outliers, but the regulators understand how important this is, and you're not going to get held to little rules after the fact. I'm pretty confident in that, and if you are, you'll go to the papers and it'll be okay. That said, you may want to know what the law is. So on Friday, March 13th, Secretary Azer issued a number of waivers to Medicare and Medicaid requirements. One of the waivers relates to EMTALA, but there are two significant catches. First, Rather than affirmatively waiving any of the requirements of EMTALA, the waiver permits the government to grant waivers. This is weird and super confusing, but the waiver by itself doesn't suspend anything. It allows hospitals to request a waiver of some sort. It's really just an authorization to ask, and who really needs that? Second, the only parts of EMTALA that may be waived are those that relate to transferring patients to another facility. If the hospital seeks and receives the waiver under the directive, then if they transfer the patient to another location to get a medical screening while following either a state emergency preparedness plan or if they transfer a patient who hasn't yet been stabilized, but it's because of circumstances related to COVID-19, they're immune from penalties under EMTALA. However, as we discussed last week, 
If a patient presents in the ED and the emergency room physician is trying to determine whether to place the patient in observation or send them home, there's no protection for a decision to send the patient home, even if that decision is motivated by a desire to protect the patient or free up beds for others with life-threatening symptoms. There are a bunch of lessons here. First, if you Google this, you will find articles that say all of EMTALA is suspended. Google is still a crummy research tool. Second, this analysis is hard enough that law firms are split on how to interpret it. Third, understand that there are two types of waivers. Some are a true waiver, and they completely suspend the rules. Others are merely permission to ask permission. The EMTALA waiver falls in that latter category. Now, while I'm happy to dig into the details on all of these regulations for clients, for many, the best approach is to focus on the big picture during the pendency of this crisis. If you're facing a quick decision, choose the path that helps the most people and will sort out the legal situation afterwards. My wish is that Congress would pass a law saying something like, to the extent that a person or entity takes an action in good faith, motivated primarily by a sincere intent to improve the delivery of health care to patients during the COVID-19 emergency, all statutes and regulations, whether civil or criminal, that would otherwise interfere with or limit actions are suspended. It's a big ask, but we're facing a big crisis. So Chuck, if you're going to play the game, boy, you've got to learn to play it right. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. Know when to walk away and know when to run. If you're gonna play the game, boy, you gotta learn to play it right. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. This isn't a time to be counting your money, but I do recommend following Kenny Rogers' advice to focus on the secret to surviving. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredersen Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Sandwick. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Well, good morning, Chuck, and good Monday all. So this is not a typical Monday, so this won't be my typical social determinants of health report, simply because everyone is coping with the new norm imposed by COVID-19. Well, persons at risk for the social determinants face tougher challenges. Let's face it, add those exposed to this latest national disaster, and the tally speaks to massive social needs across all populations. Here's a broad swipe of resources for you and your populations. The URLs and related documents live in our weekly resource folder with a more detailed listing in my upcoming Rack Monitor article this week. First, passage of the Federal Families First Coronavirus Response Act encompasses requirements for companies with under 500 employees and government agencies to give full-time employees 80 hours of paid sick leave and provide part-time employees with paid leave. It amends the Family and Medical Leave Act, allowing up to 12 weeks of job protective leave and applies to anyone with coronavirus in quarantine or caring for someone in quarantine or caring for a child under 18 whose school is closed from the outbreak. Public health provisions plus payment for COVID-19 diagnostic testing by private health plans at no cost to consumers. Increased nutrition assistance through WIC and other grant programs. 
funding of meals for low-income seniors who are homebound, have disabilities or chronic illnesses, and permission for new school meal waivers. Next, anyone laid off due to the outbreak, file for unemployment, whether it's due to the business slowdown, illness, or caring for someone believed to be ill. Yes, we know the websites are crashing, but stay at it. The request is that everyone seeks to file. Three, state utility companies are not shutting off power for non-payment, with most reconnecting services previously shut off for residential customers. Energy assistance for customers experienced financial strain is also available, but check your local utility company websites for more information. They've got great information right on the front page. Four, CMS, as we've discussed, has rendered lots of guidance these last few days, especially latest on how community-based organizations involved in the PACE program should address COVID. These programs are critical lifelines to seniors with guidelines allowing them to stay safely in their homes versus admission to facilities where risk of exposure to the virus is far more significant. Five, food security is a priority. Seek guidance from the programs still operating, Meals on Wheels America, Feeding America, foodpantries.org, which has a listing by county of where you can access active food pantries. The SNAP programs are automatically renewing participants through May, and most schools are continuing their free meal programs, some as drive-through, many as delivery with school buses still going around and dropping off brown bags. On the housing front, evictions are being held, but those already homeless are vulnerable to virus transmission. Efforts to help them include blocking off hotel rooms, deploying trailers, and tents. Shelters are also actively monitoring temperatures and the conditions of residents. The local United Way websites provide information on economic relief for bills, rent, and food. The National Community Action Agency Network has over a thousand agencies providing financial and other social services. Finally, the old standbys of AuntBartha.com and 211.org are actively up and running. One last note, attention to mental health is a necessity. And while there is a full listing of resources in the article, SAMHSA's disaster distress line is 1-800-985-985. 5990, or you can text talk with us, all one word, to 66746. This list is fluid and will continue to grow with further resources to be provided moving forward. Now, for this week's Monitor Monday survey, our panelists wanted to take a very different stance. These are unparalleled times for the workforce, and we want to know how you are all doing. The results of this survey, as always, are anonymous. So here is this week's question. How is your hospital's supply of personal protective equipment? A, we have plenty. B, we are short and are conserving. C, we are short and are recycling. D, we have nearly none and providers are using bandanas or something else for that matter. E, I don't work in a hospital. We're looking forward to seeing the results and hearing from you all. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen. That was consultant and author Ellen Fink-Sandwick. And as Ellen said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener survey later in the broadcast. 
Now's the time for the Monitor Monday Legislative Update with Matthew Albright. Monitor Monday Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous. Zealous is a market-leading provider of claims, cost, and payment optimization solutions to price, pay, and explain healthcare claims. Here now is Matthew Albright. Thanks, Chuck. I'm going to start with what's going on in Congress, and then we'd like to drop down to the state level, particularly with what they're doing with telehealth. Congress is working on the third phase of what now is being talked about as a four or maybe even five phase response to the coronavirus. In the first phase, in the first week of March, Congress passed the Corona Preparedness and Response Act focused on pursuing a vaccine and stopping the spread of the disease. Second phase was the Families First Act, which required COVID-19 tested to be done at no cost to the patient. Ellen talked about some of the provisions of the Family First Act earlier in this program. That act was passed last week and is now in effect. Now we're at the third phase called the CARES Act, AKA the Coronavirus Stimulus Act. And at an estimated nearly $2 trillion, it is the most expensive legislation passed ever. The CARES Act is expected to give economic support to individuals and families, as well as to businesses and whole industries, including the healthcare sector. We've all probably heard about the CARES Act because the headline said that most households would get checks immediately, and that element is very likely to be in the bill, though the amount is not completely certain yet. The CARES Act would also delay when tax payments are due and do things like waiving penalties for withdrawing from your retirement accounts early. The big news over the weekend is that the CARES Act got hung up yesterday evening, Sunday, on disagreements between the parties on how much oversight to give the bucket of money targeted at industry. Despite that, the CARES Act is expected to pass very soon. And again, it's amazing that Congress was able to put together all three of these phases, all very significant legislation, in such a tight time frame and with comparably little partisan disagreement. Now, turning to telehealth, as Ron discussed earlier in this broadcast, CMS has broadened Medicare coverage on telehealth. 26 states have also included provisions on telehealth in their emergency bulletins and governor's orders. Now, some interesting themes. First, many of the states are are simply reminding uh, insured to review and and in some cases make sure their telehealth options and coverage are robust and, and make their members aware of their telehealth options. Second, some states are going further by setting patient cost sharing and provider reimbursement levels for telehealth. For example, Colorado, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Texas require telehealth services related to COVID-19 to have zero cost sharing on the part of the patient. California now requires provider reimbursement for telehealth to be at the same level as an in-office visit. Other states are relaxing their laws so that only a telephone is necessary for these telehealth uh, service, where previously the laws prohibited audio-only visits. You know, they needed cameras or other media. Take a look at your state announcements on telehealth. You'll find most of these right on the COVID-19 landing pages that most states have set up. Something else going on at the state level. Five states, Alaska, Colorado, Kentucky, Massachusetts, and Ohio, plus New York City, now prohibit providers from conducting any non-essential medical or dental procedures. 
And at the national level, similar recommendations have come from CMS, the CDC, the American Dental Association, and other provider groups. With telehealth and, and prioritizing only essential services, state and federal governments are trying to orient the healthcare industry towards meeting the coronavirus head-on. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was Matthew Albright. Matthew is a former CMS official. He is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. Coming up next, Sean Weiss is going to report on some of the issues related to sick leave in the case of coronavirus. Stand by. This is Monitor Monday. Learn how to use a data-driven, targeted approach for the prevention and management of complex DRG denials. Learn how to secure revenue by utilizing existing resources and reduce the cost burden associated with denial defense. To find out more about the prevention and management of DRG denials, register for a Rack Monitor webcast coming your way April 8th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. You'll learn how to mitigate immediate revenue loss and protect the future financial health of your facility with an effective DRG denials management strategy. Register now to attend How to Prevent and Manage Complex DRG Denials. This timely webcast features Andrea Taylor and Dr. Adrian Martin. Register now and save $40 when you enter the coupon code MONDAY at checkout. Sean Weiser turns to the broadcast to report on regulations regarding sick leave in the wake of COVID-19. Good morning, Sean. Welcome to the broadcast. Good morning. Thank you, Chuck, and good Monitor Monday to all. With all the goings-on right now with COVID-19, the coronavirus, the biggest questions our firm is seeing outside of how will my medical practice survive this pandemic are, how do I get paid for telemedicine, and what is the difference between the Family First Act Family and Medical Leave Act, better known as FMLA, and sick leave. The major difference between a sick leave and FMLA is that a sick leave may be taken by an employee when required and could be for any type of illness. FMLA only applies in cases of serious and or terminal illnesses. FMLA is not used when someone needs a day or two to shake off a cold or even the flu. FMLA requires a minimum of 12 weeks of unpaid leave due to serious illness of self or a family member. The sick leave, however, is a benefit that is provided by the employer and is absent of any federal laws, although some states have enacted legislation. FMLA is impacted by the coronavirus if an employee or his or her immediate family member contracts the virus, FMLA could be triggered, assuming the disease becomes a serious health condition. However, the FMLA does not apply to asymptomatic employees who require a leave of absence as a result of government-mandated quarantine or employer-mandated quarantine due to a potential risk of coronavirus. Employers are encouraged to contact counsel to determine how to designate leave requests. Under the Family First Act, which is only for employers with more than 50 employees, the following applies. First, an employer shall provide to each employee employed by that employer paid sick time to the extent that the employee is unable to work or telework due to a need 
for leave because A, the employee is subject to a federal, state, or local quarantine or isolation order related to COVID-19. B, the employee has been advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine due to concerns related to COVID-19. C, the employee is experiencing symptoms of COVID-19 and seeking a medical diagnosis. And finally, the employee has to care for the son or daughter under the age of 18 years of age of such employee if the school or place of care has been closed or the child care provider of such son or daughter is unavailable. Thanks, Sean. That was Sean White. Sean is a partner and chief compliance officer for Doctors Management. So, what's the data that's driving so much disruption caused by the coronavirus here now? To report our lead story is senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Chuck. I am very disappointed with what I see as a disinformation campaign being led by the CDC and regurgitated by the media and our leadership. And here's what I'm talking about. Uh, To begin, I'm the first to agree that COVID-19 is likely significantly more contagious than the seasonal flu. And while the number of those infected, as well as fatalities, may trend high overall, that does not mean that the mortality rates that we're hearing about does the same. So let's look at these numbers. Uh, For the 2018-19 seasonal flu period, the CDC reported that 45 million people in America were counted as having the flu. Of those, some 61,000 died as a result. If you do the math, this comes out to a mortality rate of around 0.14%. Now, how do they get that 45 million people? Well, the CDC surveys about 8.5% of the population, maybe 27 million people, and then they extrapolate the results to the rest of us. So is this the number of people that actually tested positive for the flu? Well, no, it couldn't possibly be. Rather, the CDC counts a person as having the seasonal flu. Now listen, if they present with flu symptoms during the flu season, how does this compare to estimates for the COVID-19? It doesn't, because the CDC reports only those cases that have resulted in a positive test outcome, not based on symptoms. And if you believe what's been reported over the past few weeks, in just about every major publication, tens of thousands of people who are displaying the symptoms during the pandemic period are not, in fact, being counted because they are not being tested. In fact, I just read that Los Angeles is recommending they stop testing in most cases. And there goes our data. So what does this mean? Well, as of, I think it was yesterday, the day before, there were just over 15,000 people who tested positive for the virus here in the U.S., and of those, about 210 people died. That's a mortality rate of 1.4%, or 10 times that of the seasonal flu. So no wonder everyone's freaking out and the country is on lockdown. But is that number correct? Well, absolutely not. And it should be abundantly clear to our decision makers that this is a great example of how to lie with statistics. Let's break down the numerators and the denominators. First of all, 45 million was based on symptoms. The 15,000 are based on tests, completely different methods. For COVID-19, the number of deaths are a known portion of the tested positive population, so that numerator remains fixed. If, however, we change the denominator to those who have exhibited symptoms during the pandemic period, counting them the same way as we do for the seasonal flu, we end up with perhaps tens of thousands more than we do now. Even with a factor of only 10 times, that puts the mortality rate for COVID-19 at the exact rate as the seasonal flu. And if we accept the recent estimate from the Harvard 
uh, epidemiologists of 50 times that rate, that puts the mortality rate at about one-fifth of the seasonal flu, or about 0.026%. If we don't do something to normalize these metrics through either more testing or different classification methods, we will never know the truth about distribution or mortality. And without that, we will continue to see these destructive and asymmetric policies. Francis Bacon once wrote, the remedy is worse than the disease. And I can't see a better application for that than how this COVID-19 crisis has been handled so far. And that's the world according to Frank. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Frank. That was Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the Director of Business Intelligence and Doctors Management. This is Monitor Monday. It's a broadcast service of Rack Monitor. And it's now time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here's Alan Fink-Samnick. The results of this week's survey yield some very interesting but sad realities faced by the healthcare workforce. How is your hospital supply of personal protective equipment? A, we have plenty, only 5% of users, and I hope that every agency, every organization that ever is at a conference and now has had and is exhibiting at those conferences with all their toys and now has those conferences not canceled can now take and donate sanitizers, PPE equipment, and anything they have that would be useful to the frontline workforce. B, we are short and are conserving 46% of our users. C, we are short and recycling 12% of our users. Clearly D, most of you did not take our joke. We have nearly none and are using bandanas, but glad to hear that there were reports over the weekend that folks had resorted to using scarves and other personal items to protect themselves, and those were not deemed to be valuable. Uh, we had about 36% not working in a hospital, but we thank you for participating in the survey. The times will continue to be very telling. We've asked our panelists to stick around and answer the questions that are coming in this morning, so let's begin with David Glazer and Dr. Ronald Hirsch. We'll keep going as long as we have them. First, I just want to offer a counterpoint to Frank's point. I understand the concern about the lack of the testing. It's driving me crazy as a policy person, but it is worth noting the U.S. is five times bigger than Italy, so the 800 deaths there Saturday would be 4,000 here, which would mean that in one day, 20% of our total flu deaths of the year would occur. And then just one other super alarming thing to me, which is about 7.5% of the infected patients on the Diamond Princess wound up on a ventilator. And so that's the thing that's giving me some pause. So Ron, we've got a boatload of questions for you and comments. So first off, uh, what do you think about submitting a waiver for reducing the burden of IMM and Moon? Should we postpone the Moon, limit foot traffic to all patients? What are your thoughts? I think every hospital who is affected should submit a waiver request the email address is 1135waiver at cms.hhs.gov. This is for preventing our staff from getting infected and our asymptomatic staff from infecting our patients. So please ask. And I will echo your comment that CMS is reading these and paying attention and replying. What's the code to get the three-day waiver that you mentioned? So the DR condition code would go on a SNF claim where they're taking a patient with less than a three-day stay, also a critical access hospital who's exceeding the 25 patient limit or the 96 hour limit or an LTAC that has a patient who's not going to stay the average 25 days. So this person wants to make sure they understood you, Dr. Hirsch. The Moon and Medicare notice can be delivered by phone. You don't have to deliver it in person. Is that correct? 
The verbal explanation can be delivered remotely as long as somebody is giving the piece of paper to the patient after it's been explained. Yes. Uh, David, let me get uh, out to oh, question yeah. number four. I can summarize that. When I mentioned that the three-day waiver is good for any sniff anywhere, I think that if your hospital is operating totally business as usual, you have no overflows, no concerns, no screening going on, I would be hesitant to use this waiver. Technically, you can, but I think morally it would be wrong to do it. If you're not at all affected by the emergency, you should not be using it. I would say I'm applying some of the same principle, and there are several questions in here about audits going forward and the like, and the truth is we don't know what the future holds. I am just struck by the fact that most people seem to understand the gravity of the situation, and I think if it's two years from now and you're standing in front of a judge and you need to explain why your documentation wasn't that great during this month for extenuating circumstances, the odds are people are going to understand. I certainly don't know of an outburst of documentation audits that happened in New Orleans post-Katrina, for example. So, Ron, this, uh, and actually, or anyone else, any information or guidance for hospitals who are having difficulty moving patients due to skilled nursing facilities not accepting new patients? I'm hearing that a lot. I did talk to CMS about it. They're aware of the problem, but they have no power to force SNFs. What I would suggest is call your state and county health departments. If you really need beds and the SNFs are not cooperating, I think the health departments have the power to put some pressure on them and help them figure out how to do it safely for their current residents. If a patient is in observation but awaiting test results and they're in isolation, do you think you can make them an inpatient? I think if they're continuing to require hospital care and the result of that test could potentially change treatment, then yes, you could. If they're perfectly stable, there's no reason they should be waiting for a test in the hospital. And Chuck, as I turn it back to you, I will just note that people were wondering, where do you get the various links? There's a whole bunch of them in the panelist resources tab. Thanks, David, very much. That's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And we thank you so very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hurst, Sean Weiss, Alan Fix, Samnick, and Frank Cohen. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play. When you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Shelter in place, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.